Hey everyone, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 80 of the John Riley Project. It is Saturday, October 12th, 2019. We're broadcasting from Poway, California. It's a great Saturday. It's a beautiful day out there. But we're going to talk about a kind of a heavier topic, man. The elections are rigged, and we're going to break it down. I'm telling you, the process is rigged. The whole system is rigged. And I want to really share with you my thoughts on a number of different levels about the election process. And, you know, this is a this podcast is, is a podcast I talk about all the time. It's about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And... The liberty angle to that is really the political side of it, and I I tend to look at look at the politics through the lens of liberty. You know, I'm a big free market guy, big um, you know individual rights person, uh, big on low taxes, low regulations, that sort of thing, and so you can live your life according to your own values and you can pursue your own happiness without being coerced from authorities or from other um, violent actors. And so that's, that's kind of the, the perspective I take on this. And when I, you know, as a person that, that's active and votes and I'm constantly frustrated because it's so rare for there to be candidates um, representing, you know, anything similar to my point of view, largely because the system is rigged against them. And again, that's what I really want to share that with you as we go through this. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's Saturday. And actually, just to let you know, today we're um, going to be going out to the Wyoming San Diego State football game, going to do a tailgate party out there um, with my friend Larry. So that should be a great time. Looking forward to that. I uh, just want to enjoy the weekend. Um, but yeah, it's still love trying to get these podcasts recorded. So right now it's about, you know, 1130 on Saturday morning. And so I thought I'd put this together for you just to share. Um so yeah, let's let's go through this. And you know, like I said, I mean, I I don't think I'm all that much different than a lot of other Americans. I mean, we're just really unhappy with the way the whole political process is set up. I mean, think about the 2016 election and how many people were just frankly, you know, unhappy with the two primary choices of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. There were a lot of people that were just disgusted by those particular choices. So there's just a a lot of dissatisfaction and and really, in so many ways, the two-party system is just failing. Um, I mean, think about it. You go through so many areas of your life where you're shopping or buying product. I mean, you choose from a whole variety of different options, different competitors, um, all sorts of different choices that you have. But when it comes to the presidential race, it's essentially a choice between two. And, you know, some people think that way, you know, the system is rigged that way in a, in a lot of ways. Um, the system is broken uh, because when you are really essentially presented with these two choices um, and you find neither one of those candidates to your satisfaction, well, then, you know, this is the, the we have a we have a serious problem. And I think a lot of others believe that. Now, the election process is rigged at many levels. And I'm going to try to keep this within the scope of state and national politics. But, you know, right now we're going through the presidential primaries. And then, of course, in you know, as we get to November of 2020, we'll be in the general election. But even right now, during the presidential, really, we haven't had a primary election yet. I think those votes don't happen until I think it's February of 2020 is when they begin in Iowa and New Hampshire. But the debates are hot and heavy. And we've got another Democratic debate coming up on Tuesday. And... Already a big piece of news. 
Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is a, pre- a candidate for president of the United States. She's a congresswoman from the state of Hawaii. She's a very outspoken, very bold woman. And she's saying that she's considering boycotting the debate on Tuesday of this coming week. And this is very interesting. And she said they are attempting, and when she says they, she was referring to the Democratic National Committee. I think it's called the DNC. They are committing, or excuse me, they are attempting to replace the roles of voters in the early states using polling and arbitrary methods, which are not transparent or democratic and holding so-called debates, which are not debates at all, but rather commercialized, excuse me, commercialized reality television meant to entertain, not inform or enlightened. And I'm thinking, I saw that from her and I thought, she is so right. I mean, she is dead on right. And if you check, she put out a, about a two-minute video. If you can look her up. And she talked about it, how she was outspoken that in the 2016 election, she thought that the Democratic primaries were rigged largely uh, against Bernie Sanders and for Hillary Clinton. Um, and, and that's true. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And right now, you know, we have this this debate process where the Democratic National Committee in cahoots with the corporate media are trying to winnow the field and thin it out as each individual debate comes forward based on polls and other arbitrary decisions before the voters vote. So I I think she's absolutely right. Um, You know, we um, we have a debate system, you know, in these primaries, which is a great thing. I, I love the debates for me. You know, I'm not a I'm not a Democrat uh, registered uh, voter. In fact, I rarely ever vote for Democratic candidates, but I love watching the debates because I like the open process, the healthy discussion of ideas. And, you know, and granted, she's right. It is in many ways sort of a a commercial. It's not really like a Lincoln Douglas debate where you're really kind of going back and forth. Um, But it's still, I think, is a great process. But the fact that... um, There's a system that can thin the field out before the voters vote. I mean, think about it. If you're a candidate for president and then you don't make the cut for the debate, well, then you're suddenly looked upon as not a viable candidate. And then suddenly you begin losing even more support. So it's almost like you're being dismissed before the voters have even had a chance to vote for you. So I think she's got a great... um, I think she's right on target with this. And what's interesting, just for the record, is that she actually qualified for this Tuesday's debate. Um, so, you know, is this a smart move for her to to boycott it? Well, she says she's considering boycotting it. Now, if she's smart, she'll actually go and participate in the debate because she'll get more upside by participating than she will by making a principled stand and essentially being ignored after that. So I think she can still make the principal stand as she's doing now, saying that she's considering boycotting and then making her case for it. But then I think she needs to do the right thing and actually participate because it'll be in her best interest. Um, but you know what? I mean, I'm, we're criticizing the Democratic Party as far as winnowing the field. The, the, the Republicans do the same darn thing. I mean, like right now, have we seen any debates amongst the Republican candidates? I know that there are three um, competitors to President Trump. There's uh, Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. Um, there is um, 
Mark Sanford, um, the former congressman um, and governor of South Carolina. And then there is one other person whose name is escaping me, and he's a talk show host from Chicago, but he was also a former member of of Congress. And I remember he has a name that is similar to someone else famous, and I can't remember that individual. But all three of those are legitimate candidates with legitimate national profile political resumes that I think are serious candidates. And are we seeing a debate? Well, there's been a couple of small ones amongst them, maybe two of them on on a talk program. But certainly President Trump isn't participating in the debates because the party is protecting him. And then the Republican Party goes even further. And already in five states, they've canceled the primaries or the caucuses in the states of Alaska, Nevada, South Carolina, Arizona and Kansas. They just said, oh, we're just not going to vote. We're not going to have the people vote in caucuses. We're not going to have the people vote in primaries because Trump's going to win anyways. And we all support Trump. So we're just going to have Trump be the automatic guy from our state. And I'm thinking the elections are rigged. And this is another great example of it. Um, And then, heck, even in the 2016 election cycle, when, you know, the Republicans um, excuse me. Yeah. When the Republicans were going through their process and they had a huge field of candidates, they also did the same thing that the Democrats are doing now, where they were winnowing or thinning the field. And I remember they had the the kitty table debate, you know, kind of making fun of the whole Thanksgiving thing where the adults are at the big table and the kids are at the little table um, for the candidates that had lower numbers in the polls. They had them at a kitty table, which in some cases they weren't even invited to that. Um, and each successive debate, they would ratchet up the criteria, just as the Democrats are doing. They keep raising the bar, and it's all based on polling, you know, where they're only talking to maybe a few hundred, a few thousand voters. And they're using that to project over the long term, which I think once once they thin the field out, they're really be rigging the system and essentially protecting the establishment candidates and preventing upstarts from really challenging. And they're destroying the democratic process. So we're seeing this in both parties. Um, and I, I just think it's disgusting. So, you know, when you hear people and usually hear this from people on the left, um, the democracy is under threat. They're right. I mean, because this process, the elections are rigged and it's not just the actual voting process, but it's the whole system that goes around the way the media reports on it, the way the debates work, um, the whole system as we lead up to when people actually um, vote including that process of voting, all of it is rigged. So we're going to break it down. So I got a list of things. And some of these I'm sure you probably know, others you don't. Like the first one on the top of my list is the way the Republican Party is constantly trying to block people from voting. And you see this where there are cases where they don't want to prevent people from registering to vote. Um, You see this with you know, the whole notion of uh, motor voter, where putting um, registration, uh, voter registration in the Department of Motor Vehicles, you know, so so it can be more automatic, more easy for people to register. And in some places, you know, there have been um, initiatives to just make voter registration an automatic thing. Um, and and you see all these efforts to block voters, make it difficult for them to vote, make it difficult for them to register. I mean, I think that's just ridiculous because, again, it's manipulation of the process. And it, if 
if and we you know we can go back in time. I mean, with polling taxes that were discriminatory to to the poor, particularly to people of color. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. It just takes different forms, and and I'll, I'll share some more examples as we go through this, but. You're seeing a manipulation of the registration process, preventing people from being even able to register or making it extraordinarily difficult. Then there's the electoral system, electoral college system, which is right now getting a lot of um, publicity. I mean, because there have been two elections within the last you know, 16 years um, where the person that didn't win the popular vote ended up winning the electoral college vote. And you hear a lot of conversation about why that's important and, and oh, well, then you don't want, you know, you hear people say you don't want the big cities like New York and Los Angeles to dictate the vote. Um, this gives smaller states a chance to have some power and, and frankly, disproportionate power, in my opinion. And I think mathematically that's true. Um, so you hear a lot of, of that play. Now, I am a believer that it should just be a popular vote. I mean, the Electoral College is another distortion or a manipulation of what the popular vote really is. Um, and the rationale for the Electoral College, you know, back in the day was to give essentially slave states more power. It was a compromise position because they didn't want the North to be able to dictate the president every time. Um, but let's break down one specific element of the Electoral College that I think is really important to focus on. And it's the notion that with with a couple of exceptions, every state is a winner take all state. So the state of California, which I can't remember how many electoral college votes we have. I think it's, is it 68, something like that. Well, during the general election, when we, when we vote, the state of California will have some proportion that will vote Democrat, some proportion that will vote Republican, but almost always, at least in, in recent decades, 100% of the electoral college votes will go to the party or the candidate um, who won the election. So if a candidate ends up, let's just say hypothetically, getting 60% of the popular vote, they end up getting 100% of the electoral college votes for that state. And so that, that, in my opinion, is like stealing a vote. So, for example, I'm, I live in the state of California. I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, but my vote essentially counted in her column because 100% of the votes in the state of California go to the winner of the popular vote. So in a, in a regular popular vote across the whole state, then every vote counts. But in this case, because 100% of the popular, excuse me, 100% of the electoral college votes goes to the popular vote winner, then, yeah, people's votes are stolen. They are essentially ignored. Um, so I, I just think that's just fundamentally wrong. And then because of that winner-take-all process, what ends up happening is, is that you have all these so-called safe states, like California is a safe state. And up until recently, I think you could say Texas was a safe state for the Republicans. And, and so what ended up happening is, is that Votes in those so-called safe states really weren't all that valuable. You knew that if you went to the polls and voted, 
that really it didn't matter if you voted yes or no or for which candidate or not. That whole state was going to swing red or swing blue. I mean, it was it was a safe state. Um, so as a result, the states where they are so-called swing states, states where the Republican and Democratic votes are pretty close, um, those states, if you're voting there, your vote is far more valuable. So if you are a voter in Ohio or Florida, your vote carries a lot more weight and has a lot more power than a vote in Vermont or a vote in Alabama. Um, so the and, and the candidates know that. So the like, think about how many candidates during the general election I mean, in the primaries, California is going to be competitive to a degree, but in the amongst the Democrats, but in the general election, how often do you see uh, general election candidates like Hillary and Trump campaigning in California? It was very rare. They were primarily here to do fundraising. Uh, So these candidates can essentially ignore these states and then just focus all of their attention on those states that are swing states. And frankly, that's part of the rig process as well, is that they don't have to campaign everywhere. They can only campaign in a few spots and and, and, and then I'm winning the thing. So it's... um, it's an interesting argument because you hear people say, well, we don't want Los Angeles and New York City to decide an election in a popular vote. Well, right now you already have a small handful of locations that effectively decide the vote. But at least in a popular election, every vote counts the same. But in an electoral college system, it doesn't because votes in certain areas carry far more weight than votes in other areas. And the, and the, and the candidates know this, and that's why they don't bother campaigning in a general election in Oregon or in, um, in Mississippi because they know those states are safe. So, again, the system is distorted. The system is broken. The system is rigged, in my opinion. Um, and then look at the media coverage. You know, wh- whether you're looking at all the cable news or, or the online print publications, I mean, newspapers, magazines, television, um, radio, I mean, they are just so massively focused on the two party candidates. And a, an upstart third party candidate really is just sort of dismissed because no one takes them seriously, even if they are uh, they have some kind of a track record, some, some kind of a history. You see this and, and even at the not just at the presidential level, but at the governor level, at the um, Senate level, the congressional level, the focus is always on those two par- main parties. So it becomes sort of a chicken and egg thing where the media focuses on those two primary party candidates. As a result, that's who the voters poll for and who they vote for. And then the media says, oh, we just cover who people want. And you end up with this cyclical process rather than having an open, transparent process that gives other candidates opportunities. Um, You know, I talk a lot about the media and I always say the media is biased. There is no such thing as an unbiased media. And people will often say, oh yeah, Fox News is biased or MSNBC is biased. But then they'll sometimes make the claim that, oh, well, the NPR is not biased or the BBC is not biased. But you know what? Even if they try to play it even handed between the left and the right, between the Democrats and the Republicans, 
they still are biased because they choose to ignore all the other perspectives, all the other candidates, all of the other campaign platforms by focusing just on those primary two. So the media also, as again, the media is in cahoots with this process. They distort it and they end up rigging the system as well. Um, and then, my goodness, I mean, you go into these debates and um, and the debates are critical. I mean, like I said before, if if you are not participating in the debate, then you are essentially dismissed by the media, by voters um, as really a non-viable candidate. But when they set the criteria to be difficult to get into the debates in the first place, then again, it creates that chicken and egg situation and it's rigged. You know, what's interesting is Michael Smirkanish, who is a uh, radio talk show person on Sirius XM Satellite Radio 124. He also is on Saturday mornings on CNN. I give that guy great credit. I mean, he really tries to play it you know, even handed, um, tries not to be biased. Although, like I said, it's impossible to be truly unbiased, but he clearly is not a hardcore red or hardcore blue. He, he takes pride in being independent. In fact, his bumper song on his radio program is that Steeler wheels song, you know, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you, which I think is great. It was a perfect bumper song for him. But he often says that when we get into the general election, why we see a Republican candidate, we see a Democratic candidate. Where is the independent candidate? Because there are more voters registered as no party preference, so-called independent voters. There are more of them than there are Republican voters. And there are more independent, no party preference voters than there are Democrat voters. So the the no party preference independent voters have a plurality. They have the most quantity of voters. They don't quite have a majority yet, but they have more than the primary two parties. Yet you never see the independent candidate or in some cases a third party candidate is very, very rare if they're ever presented in any of these debates. And frankly, in a lot of cases, these debates are set up to block them. Um, I mean, consider that, um, you know, remember in the back when I was a kid, when deba- the debates really started going again, I think, was it during the, you know, obviously the, the John F. Kennedy Nixon debates were a thing. But then during the 60s and 70s, I think the debates were no longer a big part of the process. And then in the 80s, they became popular again. I know um, the, de- the Republicans had debates and with Reagan and then, of course, the general election debate um, with Carter. Um there are some more memorable lines from President Reagan during that time um, was the one, uh, don't turn off my microphone. I bought this microphone. And then the, the, the other one about um, his criticism, jokingly, of, of Walter Mondale. What did he say? Um, I will not uh, take political advantage of my my. Um, my rivals, youth and inexperience. That was great. But anyways, back in the 80s, you know, the the vote, the debates were hosted and moderated by the League of Women Voters, who most people trust to be fair. Most people trust them to be as unbiased as you could possibly be. But then if you remember, as we got into the 1988 general election debates between Bush and Dukakis, those two um, campaign uh, teams uh, 
really bypassed the League of Women Voters and they made agreements among themselves, you know, about the rules in the debate. Like you can't say this or the debate uh, podiums have to be this height. And and the, the system became so corrupted that. The League of Women Voters basically said, We've, we're done with you guys. We, we cannot ethically participate in this because you're rigging the system so much for your advantage. Um, and I, I, I give great pride to them. Um, you know, I give great credit to the League of Women Voters for doing that. I mean, here's the line here. I'll just read this. Um, in 1988, the League of Women Voters withdrew its sponsorship of the presidential debates after George George H. W. Bush and Michael Dukakis campaigns secretly agreed to a memorandum a memorandum of understanding that would decide which candidates could participate in the debates, which individualists um, individuals would be panelists and therefore be able to ask the questions, and even the height of the podiums. The League of Women Voters rejected the demands and realized a statement saying that we were withdrawing support of the, uh, for the debates because the demands of the two campaign organizations would perpetuate a fraud on the American voter. So even the, the League of Women Voters recognized that the debate system was rigged in 1988, and it continues to be that way. So what happened in 1988 what they did, I don't know if it was for the 88 process or if they set it up by 1992, but they created the Commission on Presidential Debates, which essentially is a cabal of the Republicans and Democrats and the corporations that sponsor them. So the Commission on Presidential Debates was established, oh, in 1987. So this might have been around the time that the League of Women Voters ejected themselves. The Commission on Presidential Debates was established in 1987 by the Democratic and Republican parties to establish the way that debates between candidates for president of the United States are run. The commission is a private entity funded entirely by corporate contributions. Now, in this world of people really upset about campaign finance, about corporate influence, this should send people, set their hair on fire. But for some reason, it doesn't. And you know why? It's because this system favors those people. You know, the, where, where do you hear the most objection for corporate contributions into the political process? We hear it from both, but you primarily hear it from people on the left, from progressives and Democrats. Um, they're the ones that are objecting to Citizens United and a lot of, a lot of other policies that bring money into politics. But this Commission on Presidential Debates is entirely funded by those corporations, but because it essentially protects the Democratic candidate along with its rival in the Republican Party, you don't see people on the left upset about this because, in, in, frankly, they would prefer to keep all the other third party independent competitors out. So, again, the system is rigged. Now, it even got crazier because you remember in 1992 – they set the limit, um, you know, in terms of the polls to get into the debate at 5%. And you remember Ross Perot was on the debate stage um, with, with, Pre- with Bill Clinton and with uh, George H.W. Bush. Um, that was the one debate. One of them was the one where President Bush checked his watch in the middle of the debate. Major error. Um, but uh, 
you can see I kind of get off on this thing. I love debates. I think I just love the drama. It's entertaining. It's interesting. I like the issues. Um, and even the whole presentation, the, the, the marketing and the branding associated with it, I think is fascinating too. But yeah, President Bush checked his watch in, in those debates, which was foolish. But anyways, I digress. So back then, the, the threshold to get into the debate was by showing at least 5% in the polls. And you remember in 90, 1992, Ross Perot was just skyrocketing in the polls and had great traction. He was well above that 5%. Well, after that, after the 1992 cycle, they changed the rules, the Commission on Presidential Debates, and they said, well, now you got to get to 15%. So again, rigging the process, protecting the establishment interests of the Republicans and the Democrats and all of their corporate donors, um, and preventing independents and third parties from being involved. Um, And so here, during the 2000 election, the Commission on Presidential Debates stipulated that the candidates would only be invited to the debate if they had 15 percent support level across five national polls. Ralph Nader, a presidential debate, uh, excuse me, a presidential candidate who was not allowed to debate because of this rule, believed that the regulation was created to stifle the views of third party candidates by keeping them off the televised debates. Nader brought a lawsuit against them in a federal court on that basis that corporate contributions violate the Federal Election Campaign Act. So, you know, he's right. I mean, the 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 regulation and again, this is what regulations do. And I, this is why I say I'm, I'm for low regulations. Regulations usually have some sort of a virtuous uh, presentation, but really behind the cloak, you know, if you like looking at the man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz, behind that, really regulations are put in, in place largely for nefarious reasons to block or thwart competitors. Um, and here is a classic example of that. The regulation of the Commission of Presidential Debates raised the threshold from 5% to 15%, and they do that in a way to keep third-party candidates off the stage. Again, the system is rigged, um, and this is what I'm trying to make the case for. So what else happens? Okay, so the media and the debates are funded by corporations who object. Again, we just talked about that. These debates are funded by the corporations. And the objective is not a free and open process, which is what we would expect in democracy, a transparent process. If we are... um, uh, you know, a nation built on liberty, you would expect it to be a free and open process. But instead, it's a rigged game where the winner is guaranteed to be aligned with those corporate interests that are sponsoring the debates and are making the rules. So you see how this all works. Um, so if you have someone that's challenging that, um, they just keep ratcheting up the threshold to prevent those challengers from getting in place. So it's a rigged game and the winner ends up being very pro-corporate. And I think this is important to comment on this because, like I said, I'm a big free market guy. I'm a big low regulation guy. Um, Those that are so-called pro-corporate are not for free markets. They are for rigged markets. They are for blocking competitors. That's what you were seeing with the tariffs with President Trump right now. But this all this regulatory code, licensing requirements, I mean, we can go on and on and on. Those are all set up and built to 
block competition or to make competition very difficult. I mean, think about the regulations that are built into Medicare Part D that not only prevent renegotiation of prices, they also prevent drugs from being imported into the United States, Um, you know, drugs that are less expensive and are made by the very same manufacturers that make them here in America. So again, these are regulations that are set up to try to rig systems, block competitors. That's what this regulatory environment does. So when I say pro-corporate, I don't mean free market. I mean a rigged system using the regulations as the way to to warp or distort the playing field. And so um, that's what's going on right now. And, I mean, if you don't see it overall and the way politics works, and not just at the federal level, but at the state level and even at the local level, um, that's what happens. You know, people try to use the the system of government to gain favor. And so that favor can be used to give them special advantages that their competitors can't get. What else? Um, I I spoke earlier about how the process to register to vote is difficult and the Republicans more so than the Democrats have been blocking that. But when it comes to um, so-called ex-cons, you know, people that were that had committed a, um, a felony, so-called felons. In many cases, they're prevented from voting. I think this is wrong. Now, obviously, if, if you've committed a felony and you're in jail, okay, well, that's part of the punishment. And, but once you get out of jail, you've fulfilled your obligation to society. You've paid your debt to society. When you get out of jail, you should have the full liberty and rights of any other American. But in many states, they block felons, ex-felons, you know, people that have now been released legally from prison. They block them from ever voting ever in their life or they block them while they're still on probation, which can go for many years after they've been released. So if we're a nation that believes in liberty, well, this doesn't, this violates liberty. If we're, a, a you know, some people believe we're a Christian nation, um, I challenge that notion. But if we are, then shouldn't we be forgiving and giving people second chances? Um, if, if you have made a mistake and you've paid the penalty, then you should be restored with the full freedoms and the full liberties of any other American. Um, but still, these, um, these people um, are prevented from voting. Again, rigging the system. Um, so the system is distorted. It's warped. It's broken. Um, okay, then let's talk about this is another interesting dynamic. You know, there are people that, you know, they support either the Republican or the Democratic candidate, and they'll tell you that if you vote for anybody else, it's a wasted vote. And, and you know, as, as if um, you're throwing away your vote if you vote for an independent candidate or a third party candidate. And the implication is, is that, you know, your vote, if you want it to make a difference, you need to vote for one of the two primary candidates as if the election's somehow going to come down to a tie. And your one vote is going to be the one that's going to flip it left or right. Um, And I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, that's never going to happen. This ultimately comes down to this notion of people telling you you need to vote for the lesser of two evils. And as if, you know, and, and this whole strategy is keep the really bad guy out because our guy is less bad. Our guy 
he's okay. I don't agree with him on all this stuff, but at least he's not that devil, the, the, the other person. And I mean, we saw this. And, and in fact, you, you, you see that where people will say, you know, a vote for Hillary is really a vote, or excuse me, a vote for a, a third party or independent candidate is really a vote for Hillary. Or they'll say the same thing. A vote for a third party candidate or independent candidate is really a vote for Trump. And you're like, BS, a vote for a third party candidate or independent candidate is a vote for that candidate. It's a rejection of the other two. Um, so and, and in fact, we saw that, you know, the whole thing with we talked about Ralph Nader um, in the 2000 election in Florida, a lot of people are saying Ralph Nader was the one that screwed um, Gore. They think, well, those Ralph Nader voters, they would have voted for Gore. You know, and again, still playing this game, this sort of you need to vote for one of the two lesser of evils if you want your vote to count. Well, the people that voted for Nader in Florida were rejecting Gore and they were rejecting Bush, because they believe that Nader was the best choice. Nader was the candidate that was more aligned with their own values. Um, so uh, the situation is nuts. So the idea that you need to vote for one of those two parties, other, uh, because otherwise that's a wasted vote, that is completely illogical. In my opinion, compromising your principles and voting for a candidate you don't like is precisely wasting your vote and throwing it away when you're voting for something you don't want in the first place. I mean, the whole idea of voting for the lesser of two evils, you're voting for evil. Why would you vote for evil? That's just wrong. So um, I, I, but you see this, this paradigm, this concept is so pervasive throughout society. People have been programmed to think that they must vote for one of the two primary for one of the two major party candidates because otherwise they're wasting their vote. And I assure you the opposite is true. Now, of course, if you are in love with those two major party candidates, then, you know, by all means, vote for them because that's aligned with your values. But like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I think so many people are dissatisfied with the current process. They are dissatisfied with what the two primary parties are bringing to the table that voting for that is just perpetuating a lot of the same garbage that we have now. So um, I just really challenge this notion, this so-called wasted vote notion. Um, Again, keep in mind that because we have an electoral college system that does a winner take all, the likelihood that your one vote is going to be the, the, the tiebreaker in the entire state of California is just the most ludicrous thing. I mean, you'd be greater odds to be hit by lightning than for that to happen. Um, you know, the other part of this is, is that you, you also see this uh, another notion that's really pervasive is that people will say um, that they're voting for whomever they're voting for mostly because he has a chance to win or she has a chance to win. It's almost like they see the election as like a horse race, you know, that they want to be able to say that they voted for the winner or they only want to put their money on a horse that has a very high likelihood of winning. But 
that's not the purpose of voting, in my opinion. The, the purpose of voting really should be an expression of your values. You know, what are the principles you believe in and which candidate do you think is most aligned with that? If even a candidate exists, um, which then maybe you might want to question whether to vote at all um, if there is no such candidate that represents it. Um, but more importantly, Voting for the candidate that has the highest likely uh, chance to win, to me, just goes against the whole notion of what an election really is all about. Okay, then you want to talk more about how the system is rigged. I mean, let's talk about gerrymandering. And, you know, you'll you'll hear usually people on the left will wag their finger finger at people on the right about gerrymandering um, because I think like in the House, the Democratic candidates got a lot more popular votes, but the Republicans have more seats in the House. And I, I understand that logic. Um, but you know what? The Democratic Party gerrymanders just as well. I mean, there is and I, you may have seen some of these lines, the way these these districts are drawn. It's ridiculous. I mean, even the district that I live in, um, my congressman is Scott Peters. And it's this this snake like sinewy uh, um you know, district that starts like in parts of Escondido, flows through Poway, Mira Mesa, then swings west, goes through La Jolla and works its way down to Coronado. I'm thinking, who drew that? Well, obviously, the people that drew that are the ones that gerrymandered it. Um, they're trying to create. Now, granted, I will say this, the the the, the district that I live in is one of the very few districts in America that is not overly distorted and highly disproportional. Um, you know, like, for example, the, the, the um, we can talk about a lot of other cases where there are districts that are that lean way red or lean way blue. The district I'm in, again, one of those rare ones that you know, it is reasonably balanced, although, you know, we've had a Democratic congressman now for multiple um, election cycles, I think since 2010. Um, but, yeah, districts are gerrymandered. I mean, how often do you see a district that's gerrymandered for a third party or gerrymandered for no party preference voters? Have you ever heard of such a thing? I haven't. Um, they're always gerrymandered by the Republicans. Well, they're gerrymandered by the people that vote. I'm mean, excuse me, they're gerrymandered by the people that are elected. So the Republicans and Democrats are the ones that decide where those lines are drawn. And then oh my god, if you want to talk about it on a local level, you know, here in the city of Poway, they recently went to district voting and you know, the, 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 the way the lines are drawn in Poway is a little bit unusual. I mean, we can spot certain weirdnesses and unusual cases, but it was nothing compared to the way Poway Unified School District drew their lines. That was the most outrageous thing in the world. And I'll share the story because I think it's a really good one. So in 20, what what's the date? So this is 2019. So I think it was in the 2018, yeah, prior to the 2018 election. So this was during, I don't know, it was in an early 2018 or maybe even in 2017, the school district and as well as our city, they, they were their hand was forced and they had to go to um, district level, um, 
you know, geographies and, you know, to give greater representation to underserved groups, et cetera. And we, that's a whole other story. But the fact is, is that they had to carve up the school district and keep in mind that the school district, roughly speaking, is 10 miles by 10 miles. It's like a hundred square miles. So you figure that hundred square miles would be divided into five zones or five districts, one for each of the elected council members. But the interesting thing that happened during that process is that four of the five elected um, school board members at the time lived within a one mile radius of each other. So it was Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe and Darsh Patel, TJ Zane and Charles Sellers. You could put a, a pin in the map and then take a one mile radius and then draw a circle around that. So what is that? It's a, a two mile diameter. Um, that little one mile radius circle, four of the five candidates lived in it out of a district that was 100 square miles, 10 by 10. And they carved up that little one mile uh, radius into three districts, into three zones to protect three of the four council members. Now, this was the most utterly outrageous piece of ger- gerrymandering that I had ever seen at the local level. Now, I know it happens at the congressional level, and that's happening way above my head, but this was happening right here in my backyard. And I remember going to the school district and protesting about this, speaking publicly at the public meeting and how outrageous it was. People in um, the community spoke out against it. Even our local newspaper came out with an opinion piece calling it outrageous and gerrymandered. But the people that are elected are choosing the voters rather than the voters choosing them. So they were able to draw the lines and that was approved by those five school board members. And, um, and, and I think it was on a four to one vote or a three to two vote. I'm not, can't remember how the vote broke down. But ultimately, the school board um, chose and made the decision on where those lines were drawn. And then it went to the county board of education who backed them up. I couldn't believe it. And really what this is, is establishment interests backing up other establishment interests. And you've got people on the school board that are heavily involved in the local Republican Party and in some cases, the local Democratic Party. So you see a lot of this, you know, scratching of each other's back and and reinforcing establishment interests. The elections are rigged. The elections are distorted. The elections are broken. Um, so yeah, that, that gerrymandering is just an outrageous one. Let me go down my list. There's a couple more that I want to cite that I think are important. Um, ah, okay. So here's another great one. So if, if now this is, this is particularly true at the state level and then even at the presidential level, in order to get on the ballot, you've got to be able to get a huge volume of signatures just to get on the ballot. Now, granted, if you are running as a Republican or a Democrat, you never have to get those signatures and not not to that volume because those parties are given automatic status on the ballot. So if you want to come in as an independent or as a third party, you have to clear these huge, massive hurdles that are extraordinarily difficult, time consuming and expensive to get volunteers out there gathering signatures. Now, sure, you know, if you have a huge grassroots movement, you can pull it off, but it's really, really difficult. And the reason they do it is to protect the interests of the two main parties. The system is rigged. The system is broken. Um, 
And then here in California, you remember what they used to do is they would have the primary elections and they would take, um, you know, the Republicans would have their own primary. And let, let's just assume we're voting for, I don't know, governor um, or, you know, yeah, let's say governor. Um, the Republicans would have their own primary. The Democrats would have their primary. The third parties would have their primary. And then they go to the general election and you'd have the one Republican, the one Democrat, the one Green Party, the one Libertarian Party, whatever. And they would be on the general election ballot. Well, they dismissed that whole thing. And now they just say the top two voters in the primaries are the ones that will be on the ballot in the general election. And so what ended up happening now is that all these other third parties are essentially never going to get onto the general election ballot because the system is rigged. The system is broken. And in some cases, you get two people from the same party that are up there. So um, again, it's meant to protect establishment interests. And in a democratic state, the people that made that decision were largely democratic voters. And this is going to always protect democratic candidates because you're never going to see two Republicans or an independent and a Democrat. It's always going to be two two Democrats or or a Republican and a Democrat. So um, again, the system's broken and it's rigged. Okay, so then the media gets involved in this. I've talked a little bit about them, but remember the 2016 election cycle? I mean, President Trump, I understand when he was running, he was kind of a, a phenom saying the most utterly outrageous things on the campaign trail. Um, but when he was out there doing this, the media was on him 24-7, and he got a ton of free publicity. And meanwhile, all the other Republican candidates were jockeying for position. And, you know, you could make your judgment on whether you like a lot of those Republican candidates or not. I mean, there's some were a heck of a lot worse than others, that's for sure. But it was like they always said, the, the oxygen was sucked out of the room. And so because there was constant 24-7 coverage of Trump in the um, uh, in the media, it effectively just rigged the system for him. And it was funny. The craziest thing is that Trump would always say, ah, oh, the system is rigged and everything else. But you know, he's right. The system is rigged for him. The media covers him 24-7. The Electoral College is going to tilt his way for the Republican Party. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, he is avoiding primaries and caucuses in the 2020 process. The fact that he's avoiding the debates and he's not held to account. The system is rigged, but it's rigged for President Trump and a lot of other establishment people in both parties. Um, so, again, crazy. And so... And then, yeah, the, 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 the debate process, which I've already talked about, it's set up where they're constantly working to thin the field, to winnow the list and reduce the quantity of candidates on stage, even before the voters have had a chance to vote. Um, and they do it based on some polls of just, you know, a, a very small sample size, um, you know, and, and then the, the other interesting thing is, is that especially amongst the Democrats, they're all saying we need to get money out of politics. But then they make their decision on who gets in the debate based on their fundraising um, metrics and how well they do in fundraising. So th it's just ridiculous. So um, and yeah, this is what Tulsi was um, was was uh, rightfully objecting to is that the system is rigged. So. Okay, and then there's the superdelegates. And we saw this again in the 2016 election where the superdelegates are essentially these party insiders, and this really is mostly in the Democratic Party, where 
there are certain anointed important people in the Democratic Party that have essentially the power of thousands of voters. Um, And a great example is what happened in the 2016 primary in the state of New Hampshire. In that primary, Bernie Sanders won the primary, roughly speaking, 60% to 40% on the popular vote. So you would think that when would they go to the Democratic convention, you know, when they're all on the floor and the great state of New Hampshire will pledge this many delegates to, you know, this person for president. So you would expect that the proportion of delegates would be broken down 60 percent of them because they had 32 delegates. It would be 60 percent for Sanders and 40 percent for um for Hillary. So what is that like maybe 19 to 13 or 20 to 12? You would expect it to be that proportion. But what ended up actually happening because of the super delegates and in the process, it turned out that they got equal number of delegates. Sanders got 16 and Clinton got 16, even though Sanders won the popular vote by almost by over 20 points. It was like 60 to 37 point something percent. So, again, the system is rigged. The system is broken. The system is distorted. Um, and then, you again, the media in cahoots, and you get all these talking hands up there. And, and a lot of times they're saying, oh, that candidate needs to drop out, you know, and they start trying to apply pressure. I remember, again, I'm no Bernie fan, not at all. But I remember in the 2016 process, he, he had at one point had won eight out of nine previous primaries. And they were saying, Bernie needs to get out. We need to clear the, clear the deck for Hillary. And it was coming from the media. So again, trying to distort the system, rig the system. So the whole thing is just a mess. And it's meant to, just like I said with regulations, it's meant to protect establishment interests and keep out competitors, block them, make it really hard for them to compete. So the the establishment can rig the game in their favor. So I, I got some really good ideas on how we can fix it. And I'm going to break that down. But before I do, I want to invite you to follow me on social media. So join me on Facebook. I have my page of the John Riley Project, and I'm posting content all the time out there. I just like the conversation. I put some things out there. It's all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So um, I post some, you know, some positive, feel-good things, self-improvement. Um, I talk about electric cars. I talk about capitalism and entrepreneurism. Um, I talk about local issues here in San Diego County and even here in my hometown of Poway and our surrounding communities of Carmel Mountain Ranch, Rancho Peñasquitos, um, Forest Ranch, Saber Springs, you have RB in Poway. So I like talking about issues here. And um, you know, I invite you to join us. Um, so come on and follow us on social media. I'm also on Twitter, on Instagram, and uh, I just like the conversation. I've got my YouTube channel too. If you're watching on YouTube, I'd love for you to subscribe. I'm really trying to build that subscription base. That would be really helpful. Um, okay, so what do we need to do? How are we going to solve this mess? Now, granted, it's going to be hard because the people that make the rules are the ones that are protecting their backside and trying to prevent anyone else from getting in there. So how, I mean, it's going to require some form of a revolution uh, by the people to demand change. And we're seeing some of this, but the first thing that needs to happen is we need to encourage more voter registration across the board. 
you know, uh, and we're talking about um, allowing ex-felons to vote because they paid their price to society. They serve their time. They should be able to vote again and have all their same rights and liberties restored. Um, we should be seeing, um, if, if possible, automatic registration, um, motor voter registration. Now, granted, people are often like worried about illegal aliens voting. Okay, then have some kind of a process to screen for that. But just make it easy for people to vote. I mean, that's the whole idea in a democracy is to get people to vote and express their thoughts. So that has to be a huge part of this. And um, when we see cases where, again, you know, the suppression of registration happens, that needs to be called out with full vigor um, and and really shamed in, in the in the public uh, in the public uh, in the public eye. Um, and the other the next thing we need to do, and this is a huge one, we have to open up the debates. Because, like I said, if you are not on the debate stage, then you are really considered an unviable candidate and you're dismissed. So if the system's constantly being rigged to prevent people from being on the debate stage, then that, again, is showcases how the system is distorted, warped, broken, rigged. So um, what we have to do is we have to prevent um, the parties from thinning the field. Now, granted, they do need to have some kind of a minimum threshold to get on stage because you know, they talk about there's what, roughly 20 candidates that are running for president amongst the Democrats. Well, in reality, there are hundreds, um, but a lot of them are paper candidates, joke candidates, you know, people with, you know, very good intentions and good virtues, but maybe they don't have the resume or track record and they're ignored to a great, uh, a great level. And you can't have 200 candidates on stage. I understand that. A minimum threshold should be set, and it should be a reasonably achievable threshold. Um, But then once that threshold is set, they shouldn't keep ratcheting it up. It should be kept at that level um, so we can encourage more people to participate in the primaries. And then in the general election debates, oh, my God, this one really needs to be blown up. Um, In my opinion, the right way to do this is not by looking at the polls. It should be if you are on the ballot in enough states where you can mathematically win the electoral college vote, then you should be in the debate. And that would have meant in the 2016 cycle, we would have had four people on the stage. It would have been Clinton, Trump, Gary Johnson, and um, uh, what is her name from the Green Party? It's just escaping me. I just had a tip of tongue. I'm sorry. Oh, Jill Stein. Um, and she would have been up there as well. So, yeah, and, and we could talk about other kinds of ways to do it, because I know getting on the ballot in every state requires all that crazy signaturing uh, gathering, which is part of the rig system. We need to break that down in some way. So the bottom line is, is that when we are looking at a um, an election process where people aren't programmed into thinking they've got two choices, and any other choice is wasted. Well, we need to present the full menu of options <laughs> rather than just the top two. Uh, like I said, you know, you go to a, down a grocery store aisle and how many different types of, you know, cookies are there or cereal brands. And, and But for some reason, when it comes to presidential politics, they give you two choices effectively. Now, granted, I know there are more on the ballot, but the 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 way it's framed, the way society thinks it through, they think they only have two choices. The, um, yeah, there also has to be a demand for full and open elections. So this idea of um, essentially 
blocking primaries from even occurring. I talked about those five states where the Republicans said, yeah, we're not going to let the people vote. We're just going to give it to Trump. And I think, what was it? South Carolina, Kansas, Arizona, Nevada, and Alaska. They just basically blocked the people's ability to vote. I mean, it's the most undemocratic thing possible. Um, And then the last thing to do, and this is a huge one, and I want to break this down. We need to... We need to embrace a new system of voting where you're not just voting for the one person you want, or maybe you maybe some people think you are being so-called forced to vote for the lesser of two evils. We have to break that down. And the way you do it is through a system called instant runoff voting. And this is the solution for the lesser of two evils process. And this gives you the ability to vote you know, rather than vote defensively, which is how a lot of people vote. I mean, there's a lot of Trump voters that were motivated just to keep Hillary out. You know, they had their problems with Trump, but they said no Hillary. And then the opposite was true. There were a lot of people that had their misgivings about Trump. I'm excuse me, their misgivings about Hillary, but they wanted Trump out no matter what. So people typically do that. They vote defensively. But that's when you end up with a lesser of evil situation. This instant runoff process, which I'm about to share, lets you vote for on offense. It lets you vote for who is most consistent with your own values um, rather than keeping the person that's most bad out. Um, So here's the way it works is that when you would go into an election, you would stack rank your candidates from, you know, you would put next to the person's name one and next person two, next person four, three. You put them in the order that you'd like. And let's use the 2000. Let me use this one example. And let's pretend that you're a progressive candidate. Um, you're, you're a lefty. And you're a big Nader supporter. And this is in the 2000 election. Remember, that election was um, uh, Nader, I think, was the Green Party candidate. I think Harry Brown was the Libertarian. Um, Gore was the Democratic. And then George W. Bush was the Republican. So let's pretend that you're a lefty and really progressive, big time for socialism. You saw Gore as that kind of corporate dem that you didn't really like or trust, but usually you felt compelled to vote for him because, God forbid, you didn't want to vote for George W. Bush. So imagine that scenario. Well, in the lesser of evils, you know, they probably would have swallowed hard and, and checked off Gore. But in this process, what they can do is they could have said Nader, number one. Gore, number two, and then George Bush dead last. (laughs) And then the way it would work is that your vote, everyone's vote would go to their number one candidate. And then if the number one candidate did not win the election, then your vote would go down to the number two candidate. So in that case, Nader would not have won, I'm assuming, uh, would not have won. And then your next best candidate, Gore, would have gotten your vote. So the end result is, is that you can vote for what you believe in rather than voting against, you know, the devil. Um, so it, and, and really, if if that system existed, um, you know, we would have had I mean, it's very possible that Gore would have won the election in 2000, because imagine in Florida, if they did that, most of those people, you know, they voted for Nader. 
Those hardcore Nader people voted for Nader because they rejected Gore, rejected Bush. But imagine if they said, hey, this is not bad. I could put Nader one. I could put Gore two. He's my, you know, safety net. You know, just in case Nader doesn't win, I'd still rather have Gore. And then I can make sure that because maybe they're motivated. I don't want Bush. They can make him dead last in the ranking. And if they had done that then Nader would have almost certainly have won Florida. And then we wouldn't have had the whole hanging Chad fiasco. And and actually, Gore would have won in 2000. Now, again, I, I'm saying this purely showcasing the exercise of how it would work. I mean, I didn't support Gore and I didn't support Bush and I didn't support Nader. But that's how the thing could have worked. Um, and so I know I think it's it's a really elegant system. Um, and and the other beauty of this is that if you have, and you're seeing this because it's being implemented in a lot of places around the United States is that because it's they call it instant runoff because you don't need to have a second election a runoff election because you know in some of the local races maybe there are six or eight candidates running and then sometimes what they'll do is they'll take the top two and then move them to a runoff and then it's a whole second election so. The cost to implement elections is not insignificant. It's a, it takes a quite a bit of money for local um, government entities to run elections. Excuse me. So the fact that you can have an instant runoff where you, do, you can actually do the whole thing in one runoff vote using this algorithm of instant runoff voting, you can avoid the cost of it. So who, you know, you're thinking, instant runoff? What the hell is this? This Riley guy talking about this crazy thing. And I'm telling you, this is actually being used in lots of places in the United States. So right now, several municipalities are and, juris, and other jurisdictions, including the city of San Francisco, Oakland, Minneapolis, and St. Paul are all using instant runoff voting. Um, and even the um, uh, the Academy for Motion Pictures, when they chose um, the Oscar award winners, they do the same thing. They use instant runoff voting. And I mean, there's all kinds of examples where this is happening in college elections for student um, government. But even the state of Maine just announced this not too long ago, where they are um, putting forward instant runoff voting. And guess what? Who do you, do you think people objected? Yeah, they did from the Republican and Democratic parties. They were the ones that came out and said, no, this is unconstitutional. And they're you know fighting against it because it's eroding their position. Um, so the state of Maine has embraced it, too. So I think that's great. So there are things that we can do. Um, like I said, we can encourage more voter registration. We can restore voting rights. We can open up the debates. We can demand full and open elections. And we can push for this instant runoff voting. But the thing that you can't do, I mean, this is assuming that you're you don't like the system now. If you like the system now, then you know by all means, you know vote for Trump, vote for Biden, you know vote for your establishment candidate. But if you are dissatisfied with what these two parties are putting forward, then quit playing into their game and vote against them. Um, vote for other candidates. Um, Even if it's a protest vote, if enough people did it, we'd make a difference. And your one vote is not going to win, swing the election left or right. It's not going to come down to a tiebreaker where the electoral college vote in the state of California is going to be based on you. California is the dead stone cold lock to give all of its electoral college votes to the Democratic candidate. 
And I don't, it doesn't matter who it is, you know, if it's Biden or if it's, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie or if it's Andrew Yang or um, even if it's Tulsi, you know, talking about Tulsi Gabbard, California is going to give all their electoral college uh, votes to whomever is the Democratic candidate. Stone cold lock. So your vote. You don't have to compromise yourself and say, oh, I probably should vote for this person because I want the other bad guy out. Just vote for who you want. Vote for the candidate as most aligned with your own values. And again, if that turns out to be one of the two primary candidates, then go for it. But if it's not and you feel that unsettling feeling in the pit of your stomach that you really don't want to vote for them, maybe you're holding your nose to do it, well, stop doing it. You know, stop playing that game. Vote for someone that you you appreciate who who you love, who is aligned with your principles and aligned with your values, even if that means writing them in. Walk away from that voting um, booth feeling good about yourself, letting yourself sleep at night, you know, knowing that you did what you believe was was best for you. Um, And if you want to essentially stick it to the man, uh, go for it, because this is a great way to do it. Um, So, yeah, there there are some people out there that will bully you into trying to make you vote for the Republican or the Democrat. You don't have to do that. You don't. Um, You don't have to get sucked into that game, because you know what? If you keep doing it, it just encourages them. And then we got more and more of the same. I mean, look at the quality of the candidates that we've had. Um, It just seems like they keep going down in quality. Um, and look, and that's why so many people were just, just so mortified with the choices that they had in the 2016 election. It was just awful. So if you, if, if you love those top party candidates, go for it. If that's what's consistent with your own values, then I tip my hat. But if it's not, consider the third party candidates or write in someone that you think will be better and feel good about whom you vote for. Okay, so the elections are rigged. The election system is broken. The election system is distorted. The playing field is warped. The playing field is tilted. The whole thing is a cluster. So push back, fight against it. Don't get sucked into playing their game. Play your own game. And that's what I encourage you to do because this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So live your life according to your own values. Express your own liberty by choosing what's in your best interest, what's aligned with your values. And all the while, do it in a way that you can pursue your happiness and feel good with the choices that you made. Okay. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Um, hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you've gotten this far, really appreciate it. Um, if you love what we're doing, man, leave a rating on iTunes. That would be great. You know, like a five stars if you think we deserve it. Um, subscribe on YouTube. You know, engage in the conversation on Facebook and follow us there. That would be great. Refer this podcast to a friend. Tell him, hey, there's this guy, John Riley, he lives in Poway, and he's talking about politics and culture and business and um, self-improvement. And he even talks about electric cars and all these other kind of fun topics. Um, share this with someone. And you can catch the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the popular um, podcast platforms. 
and and it, and I put the video out on YouTube all the time. Every episode is on YouTube, and so um, yeah, share share with a friend. Um, got a f- closing quote as I always do, and this one is a good one, and it's from Joseph Stalin. Um, you know the uh, the dictator in. I guess, was it Russia or was it the Soviet Union at the time? But um, he said, and this is about elections. He says, it's not enough that the people know there was an, elect- an election. The people who cast the votes decide nothing. The people who count the votes decide everything. Oh, I can't believe I'm supporting Joseph Stalin and his quote, but it's right. Now, the system is rigged and... The ones, like I said, even the Poway Unified School District, they're distorting the playing field to serve their own best interests, to to um, gerrymander districts in their own favor. So the people who count the votes decide everything Ah, is brilliant. Um, So hold these people to account. Don't let them get away with it. Push back. Um, Reclaim the democracy in America. Reclaim transparency and liberty and choice. So important. So thank you for joining us. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 80. We're only 20 away from the big 100. We'll have a big celebration when we get to 100. Um, It's Saturday. It's October, what was it? The 12th, 2019. And I'm heading out to the San Diego State Wyoming football game over at San Diego County Credit Union Stadium. I'm going to enjoy a tailgate out there. And if you're going to be an Aztec fan, uh, let's root for them and hope for good things. We'll see you later, folks. Bye-bye.